Chapter 7, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Securing the Beachhead Of all the calculated risks taken at Inchon, Perhaps the most daring was the decision to ground eight LSTs abreast on Red Beach immediately after the assault troops landed. The Navy workhorses were vulnerable enough at best, and on this narrow strip of waterfront, they were lined up so close to one another that shots fired by a blindfolded enemy could scarcely have missed. Not all the NKPA shells and bullets did miss, for that matter. But fortune as usual blessed the bold and such enemy rounds as found their targets did not touch off tons of napalm, gasoline, and ammunition. Only with reluctance had the planners accepted the risk of landing thin-skinned supply vessels before the immediate battle area was secured. But Inchon was not a typical amphibious operation. The tremendous tidal range created an unprecedented situation, and if vital supplies were not landed on the evening high tide, the assault troops must pass a precarious first night without adequate quantities of ammunition, water, and gasoline. Dusk had fallen, with visibility further reduced by smoke and rain squalls, when the vessels wallowed into Red Beach. The reconnaissance element of shore party group Abel had gone ahead with the assault troops to erect landing guides during the last moments of daylight. While the men were working under fire, one of the beach markers was riddled by enemy machine guns as it was being erected. The H&S Company of Lt. Col. Henry P. Crow's 1st Shore Party Battalion came in with the first of the LSTs, and other elements of groups Abel and Baker followed in short order. Each of the eight vessels brought a cargo consisting of 50 tons of ammunition, 30 tons of rations, 15 tons of water, and 5 tons of fuel. These special loads were in addition to the normal cargo of engineer and shore party equipment and combat vehicles. Every LST was limited to 500 shore tons, however, in order to ensure that it could be beached without trouble. The last of the LCMs had not yet unloaded and retracted on Red Beach when the first of the LSTs appeared slightly ahead of schedule. Naval officers managed to hold the LSTs back until the beach had cleared, and the eight vessels made a successful landing in spite of treacherous currents combined with low visibility. Two of them grounded momentarily on the mudflats, but butted their way through to the beach. And though the seawall temporarily prevented several vessels from lowering bow ramps effectively, the LSTs at each end of the line were able to discharge cargo over their ramps. Bulldozers were first on the beach. They moved along the seawall under enemy fire, pushing down sections of masonry which interfered with unloading operations. LST-973 had no more than grated ashore when a red Korean mortar shell exploded among the drums of motor fuel. Gasoline flooded the main deck and leaked down to the crew quarters through holes made by shell fragments. Orders were given to cut off electric motors and enforce all possible precautions, and the vessel miraculously escaped a conflagration even though it took further hits from enemy machine gun fire. LST-857 ran into a rock PC boat while heading in toward the beach, but no harm was done to either vessel. Hits from NKPA mortar and machine gun fire punctured eight drums of gasoline without any of them bursting into flame. 
This was one of the LSTs which fired back at enemy gun flashes. During the exchange, a sailor was killed and another knocked unconscious when an enemy projectile damaged one of the LST's gun mounts. LST-859, which had a sailor wounded by enemy mortar fragments, hit Red Beach with all guns blazing away. When the vessel beached, it was immediately boarded by Marines who helped themselves to ammunition while shouting to sailors in the well deck to stop firing. The same message was slammed home more authoritatively when First Lieutenant William J. Peter, Jr. appeared on deck, as directed by Lieutenant Colonel Newton, and demanded that the LST guns cease at once. This put an end to the bombardment of shore positions. No LSTs fired after my ship beached, commented Lieutenant Truman E. Houston, U.S. Navy, commander of LST-799 at the extreme left of the line. Earlier LSTs beaching had opened fire on targets unknown to me, but my command had received very firm orders not to open fire due to the danger of firing into our own forces. As dusk shaded into darkness, the Marines on and around Cemetery Hill extended their lines into the city. Even at the climax of the military drama, there was an unexpected note of comedy. Assault troops were to discover shortly that among the ammunition brought by the LSTs, some useless 22 caliber cartridges testified to the haste of departure from Camp Pendleton. There was enough M1 ammunition, however, so that the enemy had no cause to complain of being neglected by the Marines. Supplies on Red and Blue Beaches It was absolutely essential that the LSTs unload in time to retract on the morning high tide and allow other cargo vessels to take their places. This meant an all-night job for the 1st Shore Party Battalion, which was to initiate unloading on both beaches for the organization composed also of the 1st Combat Service Group, the 7th Motor Transport Battalion, and the U.S. Army 2nd Engineer Special Brigade, with the latter in control. The vehicles came off the LSTs first, about 450 of them all told, and darkness had fallen when the unloading of cargo got into full swing. Congestion on the 650-foot strip of beach did not permit normal location and employment of dumps. It was a catch-as-catch-can for the shore party troops and engineers, with the cargo being offloaded and stockpiled wherever space could be found. Later, as the tactical situation improved, designated dumps were established. The men went about their work under the floodlights, heedless of scattered enemy small arms fire which continued throughout the night. At a glance, the unloading presented a scene of noisy chaos, yet everything was so well under control by midnight that the accomplishment of the mission within prescribed time limits was assured. In the morning, the eight LSTs were retracted according to schedule as a like number approached the beach to discharge cargo. Two of them grounded in the mudflats too far out for unloading, but the supply problem was already so well solved that this setback was not serious. On Blue Beach, it was not the intention to develop the area beyond the needs of the initial assault, so that a comparatively small shore party element was required. Only such equipment as could be carried by hand was taken ashore in the LCVPs and LVTs. The reconnaissance element of shore party group B- had landed with the assault troops, followed by the rest of the group at 1930. Provisions for the use of preloaded LVTs having been made in the assault phase supply plan, 
The shore party troops set out flanking lights to mark the entire blue area as a single beach. This was in preparation for the arrival of the 24 LVTs bringing preloaded supplies to sustain the attack in the morning. Ten of these vehicles were so delayed by adverse currents that a receding tide left them high and dry. Officers of the 1st Marines decided that the supplies were not critical enough to warrant unloading by hand over the mudflats, and the job was postponed until the LVTs could be floated in on the morning high tide. While they were discharging on Blue 3, the LCVPs came in with other gear which was unloaded and stored in the regimental dump. Prison stockades were set up on both beaches the first night. The LSTs continued to unload most of the division supplies on Red Beach in spite of treacherous currents, the tidal range, and the mistakes made by Japanese crews. Blue Beach was closed on D plus 1, having served its purpose, and the shore party personnel transferred to Green Beach, where facilities for unloading LSTs had been improved. Supplies landed there could be trucked across the causeway, and on D plus 2, the shore party troops on Red Beach were also relieved and sent to Walmido. The 2nd Engineer Special Brigade retained control of all logistical operations in the Inchon Port area on 17 September as vessels began to discharge at Pier No. 2, designated as Yellow Beach. There were assurances by this time that the engineers would soon have the tidal basin partially operative, thus adding materially to the capacity of the harbor. The 1st Combat Service Group remained in control of consolidated dumps. This organization was the storage agency for all 10 Corps supplies with the exception of ammunition and engineering materials, both of which were handled by Army personnel. Owing to the shortage of trucks, the 7th Motor Transport Battalion was held in the port area under control of the Engineer Brigade. The lack of enough motor trucks for port operations was alleviated by the restoration of rail transportation much sooner than had been expected. Although the planners did not count on this factor before D plus 30, the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade rounded up Korean crews and speeded up the tremendous task of putting the Incheon Seoul line back in working order. As early as D plus 1, a switch engine and six cars were operating in the Incheon yards. Three days later, the first train, carrying 1,200 Marines, was dispatched over the five-mile run from Incheon to Ascom City. As the ground forces advanced, the engineers followed close behind the front with rail transportation which handled a total of 350,000 rations, 315,000 gallons of fuel, 1,260 tons of ammunition, and 10,000 troops before the division was relieved. Surgical Teams on the Beaches Casualties of the landing force on D-Day amounted to 20 KIA, 1 DOW, 1 MIA, and 174 WIA, in addition to 14 of non-battle classification. Medical officers regarded the operations as a landmark because of the four Navy surgical teams, each composed of three doctors and ten corpsmen, which went in behind the assault troops on the LSTs. Similar teams had been employed in the later operations of World War II, but Inchon had the distinction of being the first amphibious assault in which carefully planned medical techniques were integrated with military operations. The surgical teams had been drilled and rehearsed in Japan for their tasks. Patients requiring immediate surgery on the night of D-Day were evacuated to LST-H-898, 
where an improvised operating room had been installed. During the assault phase, 42 military and 32 civilian casualties were treated instead of the 300 which had been expected. Such an unqualified success was achieved that the teams were recalled to Japan afterwards to act as instructors. Within a year, the numbers of Navy surgical teams had grown to a total of 22 on standby duty in the Far East. Captain Eugene R. Herring, MC, U.S. Navy, had served in the Pusan perimeter as the brigade surgeon. From a study of maps and intelligence reports, he tentatively selected a site for the division hospital on the eastern outskirts of Incheon. The 1st Medical Battalion, commanded by Commander Howard B. Johnson, MC, U.S. Navy, consisted of an H&S company and five letter companies. Abel and Baker were hospital companies, while Charlie, Dog, and Easy functioned as collecting and clearing companies. The last was organized for attachment to the 7th Marines when that regiment landed at Incheon. Medical planning necessarily had to be hurried. In view of the unusual landing conditions at Incheon, it was decided to revert the clearing platoons, normally attached to infantry regiments, to division control when they reached the transport area. Three casualty teams, each consisting of a medical officer and six hospital corpsmen, one team from Abel Company and two from Baker, landed from separate LSTs on D-Day with a mission of caring for initial casualties. Supporting collection sections of Charlie and Dog Companies landed with the assault troops of the two rifle regiments. The reconnaissance group and the two hospital companies arrived on D-plus-1, followed by the H&S Company with the equipment for the hospital setup and a schoolhouse. It was opened at 1500 on D-plus-2, with 47 casualties being received the first day. These were the forerunners of a total of 5,516 patients to be treated by the 1st Medical Battalion for all causes during the entire Incheon Seoul operation. Most of them were WIA cases, but such ailments as acute appendicitis, hernia, piles, and sprains are also recorded. Of the 2,484 surgical patients, only nine died after reaching the first aid station, and among them were six deaths following major surgery. The proportion of patients surviving after evacuation, therefore, reached a figure of 99.43%. This meant that the chances were about 199 to 1 that a wounded Marine would live. Artillery and Tank Operations The planners, anticipating the need of artillery support for the assault on the mainland, had hoped that DUKWs could land two battalions of Colonel James H. Brower's 11th Marines on Green Beach for this mission. There was some reason to believe that these vehicles could cross the mudflats at low tide, thus enabling the 105s to get in position on Walmido and registered before the Inchon landing. In the end, however, it was decided that this plan was not feasible, and the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the Artillery Regiment landed on the evening tide while the rifle regiments were hitting the beaches at Incheon. A delay of an hour and a half occurred as a result of the confused maneuvering of ships in the inner harbor. It was not until 2150, therefore, that the 1st and 2nd Battalions were prepared to deliver massed fires in support of the 5th and 1st Marines respectively. Fortunately, the lack of this support at H-Hour had not been a grave handicap in view of the light resistance encountered on the beaches.
Low visibility and lack of targets limited the fires to a few rounds the first night. Next day, the artillery landing was completed when 411 went ashore on Red Beach, followed on D plus 2 by the 96th Field Artillery Battalion, U.S. Army. Plans for the drive inland called for 111 and 211 to fire in direct support of RCT-5 and RCT-1, respectively. Support was to be provided by 411 for RCT-5 and by the Army Battalion for RCT-1. The problems of tank support for the Inchon operation had given the planners many a headache. Blue Beach was dismissed from consideration because of the mudflats and the possibilities at Red Beach were not encouraging. Green Beach offered the best prospects for landing tanks, though it was recognized that they would be stranded if the enemy destroyed the causeway connecting Walmido with the mainland. The consequences of the hasty embarkation from Camp Pendleton had borne down heavily upon the 1st Tank Battalion, commanded by Lt. Col. Harry T. Milne. Crews trained with the M4A3, Sherman, and 105mm Howitzer were suddenly equipped with the M26, Pershing, and its 90mm gun. With the exception of Company A, which saw action with the brigade, few of the men had any experience either at driving or firing the new tanks. The Flame Tank Platoon of Headquarters Company had received some training at Barstow, but most of the personnel of Baker, Charlie, and Dog Companies were limited to shipboard instruction. The men of the Company A platoon which landed on Green Beach in support of 3-5 were veterans of several fights with NKPA tanks and infantry in the Pusan perimeter. In the evening of D-Day, they supported the landing on Red Beach and moved across the causeway to the mainland at dusk. There they joined the other two platoons of Able Company and the Flame Tank platoon, which landed with the LSTs in support of the 5th Marines. At 1700 on D-Day, a reconnaissance team went ashore on Walmido to prepare for the landing of B Company, which took place late the following afternoon. Yellow Beach, in the inner harbor, was operative for the landing of Company C on 18 September, and Company D was to arrive later with the 7th Marines. End of Chapter 7, Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett